Bibles to Psalm 146 for our Old Testament reading. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now turning with me. To our New Testament reading, to the book of Hebrews. Our sermon passage this morning will focus on chapter uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, but we'll begin reading in Hebrews 11, verse 1, the entire chapter, as uh, these first two verses of chapter 12 brings this section to a close. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen... In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, 
as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me, for me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we do thank you for your word. As we have heard the testimony of the saints of old, we ask that you would use it to set our sights on our Savior who reigns above, who has gone before us, that we might run that same race with endurance. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A couple months ago, I went home uh, to visit my folks, took a road trip from here, 1,100 miles down to Jacksonville, Florida, and about halfway in the state of Tennessee. I was uh, driving along the interstate and passed uh, by a massive uh, billboard. Uh, And the billboard, of course, was advertising for a local uh, uh, product. I won't say the name of the product, but I will say the advertisement, which I think was rather uh, catchy, the advertisement was this. This is a pilgrimage, not a road trip. Of course, uh, that uh, particular advertisement was advertising for a local distillery, which I thought was somewhat ironic to uh, put together uh, alcohol and driving, maybe not the, uh, the best thing. So I figure it would be best if we hijack uh, their slogan as well, because I think that really encapsulates the message of so much of the book of Hebrews. This is not a joyride. This is a marathon. And as with a race that is set before anybody, it requires endurance. It is a race to be won. And I think this offers a perspective uh, to recalibrate our understanding of how it is that we see the Christian life and the nature of discipleship. I'd like to address this particular passage from two particular vantage points. We could call the first perspective that of looking backward. As the opening verse of Hebrews 12 causes us to look back to the testimony of the saints of old. And then our second point will be that of looking forward. As now scripture calls us to look forward to the very thing to which those Old Testament saints testified. Christ himself. The one who has gone before us that we might follow in his steps. So two points, looking backward and looking forward. I don't know if any of you have ever gone on a hike before. I did a number of years ago. I've gone on one hike in my life. I think it was uh, in the Rockies uh, in in 2014. And I think uh, if you do not have a good tour guide, it would be very easy to get lost in the woods, especially if you're looking at the the individual trees just making you know casual strolls through uh, the woods or the mountains. Well, I think perhaps we can feel this way about working our way through the book of Hebrews, particularly Hebrews chapter 11. We have for the past six months been so focused focused on the individual trees of the testimonies of particular individuals in the Old Testament, that it'd be easy to lose sight of the forest. So we consider the, the testimony of Abel, of Noah, of Abraham and Sarah, of Moses, Israel, Rahab, the judges, the kings, uh, the poets and the prophets of old, looking at how their lives differed in so many ways and yet their testimony Even though their lives played themselves out differently, the testimony fundamentally remains the same. If we were to uh, reorient ourselves and look at the big picture, get a picture of the forest of Hebrews chapter 11, looking backwards, we need to do so. Because this is how chapter 12 begins, as it calls us to pay attention to this great cloud 
of witnesses. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that they're brought into view? Is this just kind of uh, preacherly hyperbole? Is he just giving a smattering of different examples to, uh, to make his sermon fit uh, or, or feel nice and lovely? Or is there an actual point to it? And of course, we know the answer. And that the reason he brings up the testimony of the saints ties into the broader picture, the greater sermon to the church of the Hebrews. What is it that tethers the saints of the Old Testament together? And of course, I hope by now we can all answer that. It's faith. Again, we ask the question, what is faith? We remember, as Hebrews 11 opened up, faith is more than a feeling. It's more than some subjective sense of assurance. Although, as we had seen several months ago, that assurance is built upon faith. It flows from faith. Nevertheless, faith is distinct from assurance. Faith is itself an objective testimony. Something I've tried to reiterate in every sermon for the past six months, that faith, according to Hebrews 11, is a testimony. It testifies to the new world that Christ has inaugurated by his death and resurrection. It testifies to a new world that will be fully and finally revealed on the day in which he is revealed, the day in which he returns. Faith testifies to God's power, as we saw in verse 3 of chapter 11. Testifies to his creative power of old and to his power and the working of providence as he governs all things. Faith testifies to God's uh, power, but also to his promises The promises that he gave to the saints of old of a heavenly home, of life eternal. Again, as we saw in verses 8 to 22, that the promise that God gave to Abraham and the children of Abraham was not simply a strip of land in the Middle East. But it testified to a kingdom that has more firm foundations. As Moses understood and as Moses testified that this new world, this heavenly home is something of far greater value, though still yet unseen, than the greatest wealth of the greatest kingdom and empire of his day, Egypt itself. As we saw last week, faith testifies through both triumph and tragedy. The immediate outcome might look different through the individuals testifying, but they all testify to the same reality. Christ has ushered in a new world by his death and resurrection from the dead. And now the author of Hebrews brings in another point about faith. Faith is not only a testimony, but faith also endures. It endures through trial As we await the trophy. The metaphor here given in chapter 12 verse 1 is that of a marathon, right? The goal is the gold, seeking the prize. Think of what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Of course, the point is not saying that only one person out of the whole host of the church is set to win the prize. But the purpose is that we are not to treat this as a morning stroll. This is, in fact, a marathon that requires endurance. It is a great race that is set before us. There is a cost to be counted. There is a race to be run. 
And the preacher offers this particular encouragement as he joins us to call uh, to, to join the cloud of witnesses that have gone on before. But I want us to note something here, something uh, that I think many of us may perhaps overlook, that Paul actually gives a mixed metaphor here in this first verse. Note that Paul does not say that we are to join the cloud of spectators. I think so many of us think, uh, when we see that the, the, the concept of a race being run and joining the cloud of witnesses, we imagine everybody surrounding you know, a giant track cheering us on. I think in some respect that is valid. But I think it is striking that it does not say to join the cloud of spectators. Rather, we are called to join the cloud of witnesses. Over and over again in chapter 11, Paul has been using this legal terminology of testimony, of bearing witness. So the metaphor is that we are called to make a run, to make a race, to the witness stand, as it were. To join the witness stand, to testify of God's faithfulness and of his promises In other words, our life ought to testify, just like the saints of old, to that new world ushered in by Christ. This is why the Old Testament saints are, in fact, in one sense, exemplars to be imitated. I think they're more than that. The Old Testament saints testify of the new world to come. They testify to Christ. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us. That the prophets speaking by the Spirit of Christ foretell of the person and work of Christ. And yet, even in the lives that they live, as they bear witness and testimony, it gives us a pattern in which we also are to walk and to live our lives. In our own particular situations and trials, even though our own particular situations might look different from person to person. Think of the testimony of the saints of old as they all look different in many ways. Abel testifies to God's righteousness and he dies in a field. In contrast, Noah also testifies to God's righteousness, and he survives a flood. Different outcomes, and yet it's the same testimony. At the core, they each testify to that same fundamental reality. Christ has ushered in a new world. This is bringing us all the way uh, to the the latter half of chapter 12, where where the author of Hebrews will say, you've not simply come to, uh, uh, to Sinai. Now you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So we are all pilgrims making our way to that promised land. So just as the author of Hebrews calls us to look backwards to the Old Testament saints to see their testimony, he also now calls us to look forward to the very thing to which the Old Testament saints testified, Christ himself. As he uses and builds upon this metaphor of running the race. Of course, you can't run a marathon in a monkey suit. It would be rather silly. At least you wouldn't be able to run it well. Right, if you've ever uh, run a marathon, or uh, I guess if you're like me, if you've ever seen somebody run a marathon on a commercial once, uh, then you'll notice how light their clothing is. Nobody uh, ends up running a marathon with a 60-pound rucksack strapped to their back. Nobody's wearing flip-flops or dress shoes. I think the same goes with swimming. I used to teach at a high school that had a a fairly decent swim uh, program. The swimmers would never be seen wearing baggy shorts. In fact, uh, 
Uh, even the, the male swimmers would uh, would shave their whole bodies just to, to get a, a hair above the rest in, in the race. Every little bit counted when it came to winning the race. Doing everything you can to lighten the load. Anything that weighs you down has to go. That's why you don't see runners doubling down on, on fettuccine Alfredo moments before a marathon. It, it'd weigh you down. Lead to a rather disastrous result, I think, about five minutes in to the race. Rather, what you eat, how you dress, how you train, your entire life is oriented towards one particular goal. And that goal is winning the race. And here Hebrews describes sin as an impediment to winning that race. It's like getting ready for a run. And you end up tying your shoelaces to both shoes together. It's going to trip you up. It weighs you down. Sin keeps you from your heavenly destination. Sin keeps you focused on the things of this world rather than on the world to come. Be it pornography, slander, bitterness, envy, or even our own self-righteousness. These are all worldly entanglements that try to ensnare us, to keep us from finishing the race. Just as faith testifies of the world to come, so are we called to walk by faith, to testify that there is something better that awaits. What is lust if it's not an attempt to keep you from the great marriage of Christ and his church? What is bitterness but a refusal to let the same pardon of sin that Christ has shown you spill over and overflow from your hearts to showing mercy and forgiveness towards others? What is self-righteousness but thinking that you're the only person in this world who has it right and everybody else has got it wrong? Where you've established your own set of laws, where you might pass your own personal test, and everybody else fails, but it fails to take hold that there is a new world where righteousness truly dwells and reigns. And to let the law of heaven shape how we live our lives here on earth. Of course, the good news is we don't have to run this race together. It's, we're not in competition against one another. As we had seen in chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that we're called to encourage one another while it is still called today. Think of it like a potato sack race. Uh, to use another illustration. These are, this is a group effort. Nor are we seen to be the first to run this race. We are to join that race that many others have gone on before. In fact, there is one who is spoken of as the great pioneer and trailblazer of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we saw this, uh, uh, this was years ago when we were in Hebrews chapter 2, but Christ was referred to as the Archagon, the pioneer, the forerunner, the trailblazer of the faith who opened wide the doors to heaven. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and following. And here the author of Hebrews uses that same word, that here he is the founder, as the ESV puts it. In other translations, he is the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He is the one who has blazed that trail. I just watched a uh, a documentary on the Lewis and Clark expedition last night. These guys who saw a trail through the Northwest Passage, the first Americans... Uh, to make it from St. Louis all the way to the Pacific Ocean, crossing the Rockies in the midst of the winter. But by them blazing that trail, others were able to follow 
in their footsteps. Christ is the same. He has blazed a particular trail. Jesus himself lays that out in the Gospels. That this is, in fact, the nature of discipleship. If anyone wants to be my disciple, what does Christ say? He must learn to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In fact, Christ doesn't mince words. He says, in fact, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not simply that he won't make for the best disciple. Rather, Christ says he cannot be my disciple. The Christian life is one of suffering. It is one of cross-bearing. Christ has called us to take up our cross and to follow him just as he took up his cross as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the pioneer, the one who has blazed the trail for us to follow. He is also, however, spoken of as the perfecter. As we look at our own faith, weak as it may be, as we are called to walk by faith, it's uh, something that's seen in contrast to sight. It is, it is hard to see with the eyes of faith that new world that awaits us. And that's why we are called time and time again to keep meditating and dwelling upon the scriptures as it outlines for us in a shadowy form of those things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, of those things which Christ has prepared for those who love him. And yet, though our faith is weak, we are told here that Christ is the perfecter of our faith, that he takes our faith weak as it is, and he works it by his Spirit to perfect that good work which he has already begun in our hearts. And so we see this twofold pattern set before us, just as it was with Christ, first the cross and then the crown, so too with us. A life of cross-bearing, daily cross-bearing, a, da- a daily self-denial. Those things that the flesh truly wants, so that we, though suffering now in this age, might partake of the glories of the age to come. And we see the encouragement that Christ himself had as uh, he partook of flesh and blood just uh, uh, as uh, you and I are flesh and blood. How is it that Christ endured the cross? How is it that Christ endured mocking, being made fun of, being beaten up, being falsely accused, being murdered? Here it tells us in verse 2, that it's because of the joy that was set before him. Christ was able to look beyond his present sufferings to the glory that awaits. And filled him with a great hope to continue running his race well. Christ died for us as our substitute, First Peter tells us. But in dying for us, he also became an example for us. That we might follow in his steps. That he, though being reviled, did not return with reviling. He did not return with verbally abusive behavior. Though he was beat up, he did not you know, bear his fisticuffs. Rather, what did Christ continue to do? He continued to entrust himself faithfully to the one who judges all things justly in righteousness knowing that there is a world where righteousness reigns, knowing that there would be a day when Christ himself would be vindicated. And Christ was vindicated 
three days later after the cross. His resurrection from the dead was his justification, as First Timothy tells us. It was his vindication. As God's testimony that Christ himself was sinless, and so now Christ says that for all who are in him, there will come a day where we will, though justified now, be openly vindicated in the public courts where the resurrection to life eternal will be a vindication that our sins have been pardoned, and that we have been imputed with Christ's own righteousness. So that's the pattern that's set before us. That is the pattern of the race of the marathon, first suffering and then glory. So on the one hand, we should not be surprised by the various trials that arise. Right? As we've seen over and over again, our best life is not for this age Our best life still awaits the age to come. Yet on the other hand, we are also called to endeavor to shed that excess weight. All those encumbrances that would inhibit us from finishing the race well. So that our lives in this earthly pilgrimage may join the cacophony of witnesses. Of all who have gone on before of all those who have also testified that there is a better world that awaits. Where chapter 4 has put it, that there is still a Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we do thank you for Christ. We do thank you that this race you've called us to run, we do not run alone. That we have a double advocate given to us, Christ in heaven and the Spirit poured out into our hearts here on earth. And still a third, the people of God, as we are called to encourage one another as we run this race together, we ask that we would partake of uh, these means of the grace that you have given us, that we would persevere faithfully to the end as we seek to testify through the various trials in our lives of the great reward and inheritance to come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.